Welcome everyone to episode 32 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We are your hosts, Colt and Remington. Say hi, Remy. Hey, what's up, guys? So today we're going to jump in with uh, commenting on the truth behind the meme that uh, the richer you are, the more unprofitable your wife's business is. Um, if you're on Twitter at all, you've probably seen these charts about, you know, if you're in the lower income class, you know, both of you work a full-time job. If you're um, uh, middle class, then the wife works a part-time job. Upper middle class, the wife is a stay-at-home mom. And if you're upper, upper class, your wife has a business that loses $10,000 a month. And everybody takes a good laugh at it, but it, it's it's there because it's true. Just like all beams, there's, there's truth underlying it. And uh, what we're finding is if you look around at some of these wildly unprofitable businesses, you wonder how it's getting along very often, or maybe not very often, maybe just quite often. Um, there is a woman running it whose husband is uh, just loaded with cash. And essentially he's made the call that it's cheaper to pay, to pay for her failing business than it is to leave her bored. Yeah. Essentially. Um, you know, and not have a business to run, even though it's, it's losing money. So I'm just kind of something to kind of wrap your head around on that one. Uh, anyway, give me, give me some of your thoughts on this before, as I get my thoughts together. Yeah. And the funny thing is how many people in the, you know, the comments on these threads are like, Oh yeah, I didn't realize this until I became wealthy. And then I saw it everywhere around me. <laughs> and I was like, that's, well, that's exactly what I'm seeing is, uh, uh, I, for the longest time, could not figure out how all these businesses, you walk in and see they're terribly run. They hardly ever have any customers. They sell shitty products. Uh, and you're just like, this. how are these guys making money? Uh, and then as you, you know, get into the social circles and, and find out the details, turns out it's, you know, it's an art dealer run by the wife of some rich dude. And, and you know, there are people coming in paying 50,000 for her shitty paintings or, or whoever she's dealing for. And then you find out the people buying those paintings are getting profitable contracts from her husband's business. <laughs> and you're like, ah, I get it now. Okay. Um, but uh, it's, <laughs> um, so, I mean, the opportunity is that there's just all these businesses out there that um, only exist because they're a hobby of, of some rich family. That's, um, that's not really doing anything with it. And uh and as soon as they get tired of it, you can buy it off their hands for pennies on the dollar and then turn it around because you happen to know how to run a business. That's the long and short of it. But just funny that I, for the longest time, had been stumbling over this. And then suddenly it shows up in a, in a few threads on Twitter a few weeks ago and, and everybody's seeing the same thing. Uh, okay, that's how it works. Well, and, you know, the, the, the money laundering side of it, if, if you, you know, slight exaggeration there, but in some cases it's literally true, but um, kind of makes sense, like, Hey, I'll give you a really good cheap contract by my wife's painting. But there's also the other side of it where they're not doing the business deals. It's just literally like, get, this is how I get my wife out of my hair. She's going to go run this business. I don't care that it's costing me thousands a month because it, if she wasn't running it, she'd be costing me tens of thousands a month. So it keeps her occupied and out of my way. And it's, um, it's like, he's off being super successful. The kids are grown out of the house or being raised worse, being raised by a nanny. So this wife is unoccupied, underwhelmed, has, you know, cleaners for the house and whatnot and maids and nannies and all that stuff. So they have no purpose to their life. And now they're living in the shadow of their husband and their kids and they have no identity of their own and all this free time. 
So they want to go start this business just so they can have something that belongs to themselves. Only they don't know what they're doing. They've had no training and the husband is busy running his own business to be able to you know, not have time to train her. So he just keeps infusing cash into it to keep her occupied. And it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the best option to have there. You know, maybe sometimes you get too successful and you're not helping your family in that regard. Thoughts on that? Yeah, it could be. Um, I was actually thinking in another direction. I, I just realized, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the other typical play that I see is, is um, realtors, right? Uh, why would you ever pay someone 15K on a 500K house to send you listings on realtor.com or just Google searches, <laughs> you know, oh, wait a second, I'm buying influence because someone she's related to is doing something I want. And so that's the way to, to make it worth it for them. Because uh, if you're going to have to give that money away, you might as well give it away for something you're getting back. Uh, so that was just another iteration of the people paying 50K for her shitty paintings. <laughs> um, but that yeah, makes great. Total, go ahead. Makes total sense. I was going to say, that makes total sense too. You know, when you're, you make your wife's an influential realtor in the regards that you're the influential, you know, whatever you're doing on the business side. So you get her to sell all the homes for you, for your potential clients or whatever else. Like you, you keep, you keep everything in the family. Uh, and it's just another way of keeping your business contacts in your circle. Yeah. It's like, if you have to give away money, you might as well give it away to somebody who's going to return it in some other way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's get back on your prior point uh, about, um, costing too much time away from the family for having these, all these obligations. Well, like, you know, we've talked about back before the suburbs existed, back before the explosion of the middle class. And when you know, all the family did was work nonstop and they lived generationally, uh, you know, generational housing and stuff, the women were occupied with multiple kids. There was no birth control or anything. So you had as many kids as, you know, you could, could physically handle. So much larger families and, busy with, um, you know, food preparation was all day thing. Meal preparation took all day. It was, you were harvesting from gardens or whatever else. Right. So modern technology made all of this easier. Every advancement of technology has made, has freed up time for women in the home. So now they have all this excess time. You marry this really rich guy who's running a successful business. Well, now the last bit of domestic chores are gone. You have cooks, you have maids, you have nannies, right? And this isn't even for the super wealthy. A lot of this is just upper middle class, having a nanny, having a maid. Um, you know, a lot of these these features are available to the upper middle class as well and some middle class to some degree. So all these um, household uh, responsibilities have been offloaded from the wife. Well, what does she have to do? Nothing. And this is, um, you're seeing a lot of women now, they want to be kept women, they call it. You know, they don't want to be a stay-at-home mom they still want their kid to go to public school and they want the nanny to, to raise the baby and all that. They literally just want to exist. And what happens when you just exist? Well, you wind up popping pills and drinking all day because you have no purpose to your life. Um, even women need to have a purpose to their life. It's not just men who have the constant drive to purpose. It's just women get it from other sources. So now all those responsibilities that she would otherwise have have been offloaded thanks to the husband's money. So now what does she do? Well, she either becomes a day drunk that causes him all kinds of problems or here's some money, go start a business. And even if the money, the, you know, the business loses money, it's keeping her sober. It's keeping her, you know, somewhat productive, but uh, you got to wonder at some point, it's like, you've got all this money. 
is making your family's life easier actually the best use of that money? Maybe you don't, uh, you know, maybe you maybe you don't make your life life too much easier for the family just uh, so that they can have some some productivity of their own. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the biggest cases for for having a, a farm or a ranch. Uh, there's real there's real work to be done. There's <laughs> there's uh, there's meaning in that work. Yeah. Um, I'm still thinking about uh, you know if uh, if these kept women at some point at some point they're going to break right. They're either going to they're going to get so carried away with vices that they just spiral and self-destruct um, or they're going to need some outlet, right? They're going to need some way, some business, some nonprofit. They want their own identity and to create their personal expression in the world. Right. And um, uh, if she's not on a farm, taking care of animals, raising a garden, um, having hobbies around her that, that, uh, keep her fulfilled and, and use her time well. And um, if not, then she's got to do one of these crappy businesses or nonprofits. But uh, <laughs> I guess if she's running a for-profit business, um, that's probably better than her throwing away your money to all these nonprofit scams. Um, and uh, is there more constraints that means she still has to accomplish something? Um, so yeah, I guess there are lots of ways to provide meaning in life that, that are productive and useful and, and really give women a lot of satisfaction in building. And that's what they're really good at, right? Is building community and nurturing, nurturing people who need nurturing. Uh, doesn't mean that they need to go launch a business to, to have their own identity. A big part of this is having her own identity, right? Um, this is all economic classes, all generations. You'll hear women say things like they lose themselves and, that's a from that, that's not a phrase that makes any sense to men. That's not how you put those words in any order you like. They just don't make it doesn't compute to a man. But for women, they all click on that. And they say exactly, I've lost myself, and it's because they don't have an identity of their own. They're Billy's mom or they're Tommy's wife or whatever. They're never a woman in their own right. They're never a person in their own right. They're always their identity is attached to their children and their husbands. And at some point, they want their own identity. Um, now. There is a, a little, just a little side note is most women are not willing to put in the effort to actually achieve their own identity, right? They don't, they don't want to be a corporate uh, boss babe. They actually, every, you know, there's a, there's a few women who want to work the corporate world, who want to work the career world or the business world on their own. The vast majority really don't want to put in the effort that it takes to be successful in there. They just want an identity of their own. So they seek out these, not necessarily get rich quick scams, but the reason why so many lower and middle-class women fall for the MLMs, the, the um, multi-level marketing pyramid schemes, is precisely the same exact thing as the upper-class women starting failing businesses. It's a economic opportunity for you to be your own boss, and people respect you for being a businesswoman, and on and on, and whatever other sales pitch they give them. So they fall into these predatory MLMs. But really, they're just trying to find some way to establish their own identity and say, look at what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. I've got this business of mine. And, you know, and that's why they're so susceptible to those MLM scams is because they're just they're trying to seek that uh, independent identity. So with the family being broken up, spread across the country, smaller families, less kids, less aunts and uncles, um, you know, grandma, and grandpa in another state, women are left on their own in the home. And they are living in the shadow, you know, very largely living in the shadows of their husbands and their kids. 
with no identity. So it's a fair thing that they're trying to find something. It's just, how do you get there? We've talked about in prior episodes, one of the you know, quote unquote ideal scenarios is that you, you know, ideally the husband is able to provide on a single income. The wife raises the kids. And then once the kids are old enough, she starts some kind of Wi-Fi business to where she can transition from being a stay at home mom to being a business owner. Um, and even, you can even do it with the IRL business. You know, you can start with some kind of part-time two, three day a week, uh, storefront that you open up to five, six days a week, years down the road as business grows. But Wi-Fi is always easier to go with than, than IRL, but either works. It's just, um, it's something husbands have to be aware of is that part of your job as protect, protector and provider is protecting your wife, uh, from her own neuroticism and negativity and protecting her mental health and you're protecting her from herself. So you've got to be watching out that she's not losing her identity and feeling lost and just um, living in your shadow because otherwise you're going to, you're either going to be funding a losing business or you're going to be funding MLMs or you're going to be funding uh, pills and booze. So, you know, pick your vice. You've got to keep an eye on her. That's, that's your job to protect her from that. So yeah, if you, if she doesn't have, if she's not heavily occupied with raising the children and taking care of her community uh, or taking care of a farm or, or the land, um, and you're super busy with work. Yeah. That sounds like a recipe for a, you know, a lack of identity. Um, so what happens if say, for example, um, after you make a substantial amount of money, uh, instead of just continuing with your, you know, work devouring your life and then her having this kind of emptiness that she has to fill because you're not there. Uh, what if you guys had adventures together? What if you guys do things together? What if you are, what if she's heavily involved in your work? Do you think that's a better solution? Um, I wouldn't say having her involved in your work. I would say, you know, the ideal and ideal coming with big quotes around it, uh, you know, big asterisks on it cause nothing's ideal, but ideally you can get to a point to where you can scale back and maybe you can mentor her in her own business. Um, it's hard. Husband and wife teams and business don't work unless one is decidedly in charge. Right. Um, and what I've seen with most female owned businesses is the husband is off doing his own thing entirely and shows up for 10% or less of the time. And this is the successful businesses, right? This isn't the husband is funding a losing business. I'm talking about an actual working profitable business run by the wife. Um, the ones I know of, uh, I don't have stats for this. This is all anecdotal based on my life, but the ones, the couples I know, the husband is doing his own thing, whether it's a career or his own, um, his own business separate from her and she might do the bookkeeping for him and he might do handyman work for her, but they don't run it together. Um, cause it just, it just doesn't work is the short version of it. Um, what I would think would be better is kind of what I said at the beginning of this, you, you get to a point as the husband where you can scale back. You're no longer working 60 hours a week and you can dedicate time to helping her get her own business up and running business, charity, hobby, whatever it is. And you can kind of guide her with, and, and, this, and this, here's the thing though, the, the caveat with that is you have to be a good teacher and really patient, right? Cause you can easily nuke your marriage doing this. Um, she doesn't want this to be your business that she wants it to be her business, her, her thing. So you need to be able to guide her without micromanaging her and let her, um, let her fail if it's her decision. And she's not going to listen to you, but not in such a way that you're telling her, I told you so, or you're hanging her out the dry. 
So it's a very fine line to walk. It can be done. It absolutely can be done, but you've got to be willing to tell her, Hey, based on my experience, I would do this. And if she says, well, I'm not going to do that, say, okay. And then if it fails, don't turn around and say, I told you so. Instead, it failed. Go, okay, well, here's what I've done when I've hit failure points like this and, and so on. And just mentor her, mentor, support her, back her up. And if she's, if she's a quality person and an honest in her ventures, then she's going to appreciate that. If she's just looking for an easy way out, kept woman, artificial status with no real work, then you probably just picked a poor wife and you're screwed no matter what. So is the, is the primary purpose for her launching a business, is it to make money and be successful or is it to establish a community and socialize and, uh, and express herself into the world? Mostly the second, uh, maybe not establish community, but establish identity. Um, which I guess for women that could largely be the same thing, having an identity and having a community. Um, but for a lot of these women, the money is going to be secondary, right? Um, to such an extent that you, for a lot, like that's why so many of these, these businesses fail or uh, don't fail. They lose money and the wives are perfectly content to be, keep running it because the money doesn't mean anything. There's, there's a good amount of women to where money just has no meaning whatsoever. It's just a means to things. They don't care where it comes from. They don't care where it goes. They don't care so long as there's enough of it. So um, you have to know going into this, if your wife is the type to where numbers don't have any meaning. Um, I can't even tell you, you know, maybe it's a third or two thirds. I, I'm not really sure. But um, yeah, you, you just need to know your wife going into it. You need to know what type of woman you're Speaking of crappy businesses, I, this AI revolution is really exciting for a lot of reasons um, because... I think it's going to eliminate a whole bunch of the crappy jobs done by really useless people <laughs> that just obstruct all the productive people. So I kind of have this theory that uh, there's this iceberg effect of, of deadbeats at a company where, you know, any big company, there's, they're going to hire a bunch of deadbeats who, for whatever reason, are able to stay in their job. But for every one of those, there's probably five people who aren't really pulling their weight. They're just kind of there processing paperwork. Uh, and all these people are going to disappear and suddenly, you know, half of my day that was previously wasted on dealing with these people and getting past these people and all of the, in all the structures that they exist in and all the regulatory compliance structures and admin structures, HR, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of that stuff will start going away pretty fast. Uh, so, um, AI is just amazing in so many ways, obviously everybody knows that, but uh, it's really exciting if you're a if you're actually adding value to the world because it will quickly put people into two buckets either they're adding value or they get replaced. Yeah, I mean we, we kind of touched on that a couple months ago when we talked about should UBI be mandatory and it's AI is showing more and more. It's like if you're if you are a deadbeat person if you're you're an anchor in my way, please just go somewhere else. I don't care if I have to pay a tax to keep you out of my way, but you can be replaced. And I've seen the tweet a couple times now worded different ways, but basically it's, you know, your job is not going to be replaced by AI. Your job is going to be replaced by a person using AI. Somebody's going to be able to do the work of five deadbeats using AI tools. And therefore those five deadbeats can go away. And the, the productive person is now two or three times more productive. And your top performer doubling his efficiency replaces five or six deadbeats, you know, five of those iceberg deadbeats. That you're... So yeah. The more you learn to uh, 
upscale yourself with AI, the more other people become replaceable. And I, I'm looking forward to it because of the exact same thing you said. I'm tired of these these roadblocks, these people who would just serve no function in my way. The sooner I can get past you, the better. Yep. Uh, and we saw uh, there were a bunch of posts like, uh, last week about on Twitter about AI girlfriends and how real they're getting, how unbelievably real they're getting. You can still tell a tiny bit, you know, in their lip movements and stuff and some of the lighting, but uh, they're getting incredibly good and you can program them to be interested in and converse with you about anything that you're interested in, right? It's like a, it's like a nerd's dream. <laughs> a girl who's pleasant to be around, knows a ton about what you want to talk about is bizarrely interested in what you want to talk about, <laughs> which means uh, a whole bunch of women who did not find a way to add real value to their are screwed, right? A lot of these women who got seduced by feminism into being a boss babe and chasing the corporate world and not building a family, not getting married, not getting attached to someone, a man who cares about them, they're going to be easily replaced by AI. And you look at all these e-girls who flirted on the edge of, of uh, OnlyFans or may have done OnlyFans and they're living high right now, driving around their, their $200,000 cars. But within a few months, they're going to re be replaced by AI girls. <laughs> <laughs> on OnlyFans, we're way more entertaining. Uh, and now, what are all these all these women going to do who didn't actually build families and didn't build? build yeah, and it's it's twofold. Or God, so many so many things unpacked there. So let me rewind a bit. Um, you ever see back in the nineties the uh, the news specials where they would uh, the news shows would go undercover and look at like the um, the nine hundred number sex phone operators, and they were like really fat, ugly women, or um, sometimes old women, or even really effeminate men. And they're, you know, they're, they're running the 900 numbers, talking to guys, and that was you know, pre-internet days. And now, before we even get to the AI, true AI girlfriends, you have guys on there using that, um, the AI covers. So it's a guy, but it's looking like a girl online and he's the one chatting with, with you. And, and when he's talking into his microphone, it's coming out as a girl's voice and all that. So you have men running these sex chats, basically, as, you know, virtual only fans as men doing it. And then the next stage, yeah, is going to be, you're going to have the actual AI do it because it's just a predictive text model. So it's going to know exactly what you want and it's going to learn just like your phone knows how to do predictive text based off of you specifically, you type in stuff and it starts figuring out, you know, whenever you type these words, what the next ones are versus, you know, the mass of people, they're going to be able to customize it to the individual user to know, you know, this guy, he likes Asian women who are more submissive. This guy likes black women that are dominant. This guy, you know, nobody wants to deal with white women nowadays, but um, whatever porn you have, you preference you have, not just looks, but attitude and, and whatnot, they're going to be able to program it to the individual user. And so that's going to put all the um, OnlyFans girls out and, and other thoughts like you talked about, but also the bottom tier beta males who would eventually scoop these women up when they become born again Christians or whatever else, uh, you know, they're looking for when they're looking for a guy to pay for them. They're, they're going to be sucked into this AI porn world. So they're not going to even care to pick up these women afterwards. And the only thing is going to be that these women either spiral and become pill poppers, or they're going to get scooped up in the uh, harems run by these hyper-masculine pagan guys who are going to be like, shut up and do as you're told and join my harem. And they're going to say, okay, because it's either that or, or pills. Yeah, it seems like it really cut off the 
the sort of backup plan that all these girls count on, you know, the, that they'll do whatever they want in their 20s and then turn over a new leaf and go trad in their late 20s and then they'll trick some some pathetic chump dude to marry them. Seems like that's going away pretty fast. Yeah, the, those options are vanishing quick. And it's, again, I mean, I, I've, I've said this in, in the past and I'm, I'll probably wind up saying it again. I'm becoming a broken record on it. But we are going to see harems run by hypermasculine pagans. Uh, it's already starting and it's it's going to become a more uh, regular thing because they're the only ones who will actually tolerate that kind of behavior from women in the sense that um, they tolerate it by being extremely domineering. And it's just like, you're going to join my harem and do as you're told or you're out. And the women are going to just say, okay, because they're going to be desperate for that masculine attention. And, and they're going to be desperate to keep for anybody to keep them from spiraling worse. Uh, and the ones who aren't willing to accept that are going to spiral. They're going to become pill popping day drunk, uh, um, spinsters and they're going to pat themselves on the back for being having too much pride to be a part of that harem but they're also not going to clean up their act in any meaningful way they're just going to become booze addicts or pill pill poppers and boot, you know, alcoholics so they'll just be a different type of degenerate i feel like a lot of these women who who fell for the you know fell hard for the feminist revolution which made so many of them insufferable and useless in families like they're just totally screwed um and as you said, yeah, it's going to be this massive rise in, in harems run by hyper-masculine pagans. Basically, the way I see it is there's going to be three categories of women. There'll be mothers, wage slave spinsters, or geishas in their various forms, even if that's in the corporal. Uh, and uh, <laughs> what I'm hoping is that maybe you know, girls who, who haven't hit that age range yet, you know, who are still uh, young and... Um, haven't, maybe haven't hit their teenagers yet or early in their teenagers will recognize what's happening. And so maybe they see this AI and realize, oh, wow, I cannot fall into that trap. And maybe it will convince them that they need to have a family and to be worth marrying um, and to make that decision early in life. Because once you go down the wrong road, uh, you may not make it back. It may be utterly impossible. So I'm hoping that it will catch, you know, in the near term, there's going to be a lot of chaos and, and a lot of women who had degenerate into pill popping crazies cat ladies and and then ultimately sadly medically assisted suicide but hopefully the long term those women will become cautionary tales for all the girls who are growing into womanhood right now to do the right thing and here's the big irony of of all of this at least from where i'm sitting is that not only are the women who are leaving the corporate world to go back home and be stay-at-home moms and stay-at-home wives and, and run the family not only are they correct but the men should be paying attention to those women and actually emulating them to a certain degree, right? Because you have a whole category of women who they're inside the uh, corporate world and they go, what the fuck am I doing here? I could be at home with my kids. That's so much more rewarding. And they go home. And then now, because of, in, in my case, you have the ability to work from home, both on the farm and on my, my writing, um, the ability to work from home, I'm like, I left the corporate world. I'd rather be at home all day doing my work here and with kids that, you know, hopefully my future kids, um, you know, the women are right on that regard. They're absolutely, they're hundred percent right. The least amount of time you should spend the least amount of time necessary in the office, only the minimal amount of time, and then come home to your family and do something real there. Especially if you're not a business owner, why the hell are you putting in extra hours at the office, making somebody else rich? Get your fucking wages and get the hell out and go spend some time with your family. It's so much more important. 
And even as a business owner, you know, I don't ascribe ages to how, how many hours you should be working, right? Some people are later to the game than others. Some people hit some setbacks that, um, you know, in their younger years that other young business owners don't hit, whatever. So it's not an age thing, but you have to have an end in sight for your business to where you scale back and you stop and you go, this is enough growth. I'm not growing more this year. I'm, this is enough growth. Now the extra time goes to my family. You know, I have more than enough money. Um, the business is big enough. Now it's time to dedicate more time to the family than it is to the business and um, scale back or at the very least stop growing. Not everybody has to be Elon Musk where you just take on the next thing constantly. You can grow your business to a certain point and say it's okay to plateau. And if you can, the earlier you can do that, the better. You know, if you can grow yourself to a mid six figure income in your business in your early 20s, great. If it takes you to your mid 40s or 50s, fine. It's not about age, it's just about having that transition period in sight and going to your family. Like that's the one, if you can learn anything from women, if men can learn anything from women, it's that family is more important than uh, wage slavery. Yeah, I completely agree. And if you just use a more inclusive definition of what success is, you know, building your legacy, building a set of principles that will be carried down through your children uh, that will make their lives better and your grandkids and great grandkids, uh, then it just makes sense that once you've solved, you know, the urgency to, to be financially stable, then you transition more towards long-term initiatives, like building your kids the right way, uh, making sure they don't get captured by the state, making sure they don't get brainwashed. Um, yeah, I totally agree. Um, uh, I think I think there are also ways to incorporate them in your life as you're going through the the building phase. You know, you, you have to understand that you're not going to be as productive when your kids are with you, but you can incorporate them in your life. Uh, in the same way that you you train new employees, right? Um, and I think that kids, I think the next generation of kids who, or this generation of kids who's growing up with parents working from home, I think those kids could be highly productive employees at 10 years old. <laughs> I think we'll, we're about to be replaced by a generation of super kids uh, who grew up under the right conditions and didn't waste away their lives in class uh, and grew up solving real problems and being directly involved in your life. Um, so that's just the other thought. But um, I, one of the things that's really, oh, well, I'll just pause there. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add on that? No, I think I'm good there. I think I'll just wind up repeating myself. One of the problems I'm seeing is that, um, especially now with house prices so high, it's just incredibly hard to secure a place that's conducive to a real lifestyle, right? All, all you can afford now is, you know, your little box in the stacks. <laughs> and, uh, and especially... Um, with rates going so high now, um, I think it's we're going to go through this period where it's going to be hard for families to to choose the environment they want to live in because they can't afford it. Uh, but the silver lining is down the road. I think I think real prices for for real things will get a lot more reasonable. Uh, I think that we're about to pay a big price for the money printing escapade of the last fifteen years. Um, and but it also means that you know if you make your money off housing transactions, you may be screwed. Well, and you were the one who coined initially in, in our, some of our very early episodes that real estate is a lifestyle choice now. It's not an investment. And for the last 30 years, real estate's been an investment first, lifestyle second. It's all been about, you know, get, get in the right HOA so that your your property value is protected and that you, you know, you'll be able to sell your house at double what you paid for it and on and on. Um, all the things associated with that. And that was in the era of cheap, you know, 
of cheap homes. You know, the last time homes were at 7% interest, they also didn't cost, you know, if you adjust for inflation, they didn't cost half a million dollars. You know, the, the home, this the debate is still going on right now on Twitter, whether the uh, housing prices are coming down or not. I think we're, whatever it's going to happen, whatever's going to happen next, we're in the stalemate of nobody can afford to buy the home, but the people who have the homes aren't going to sell for anything less than what they think they're worth. And that's where we've been for the last few months. Something will give eventually, either rates will go down or the pricing will go down, but it could be another six months, year, two years. Like we could be stuck in a, a dead market for, for a while. Anything's possible, not a prediction, just a possibility. So, you know, we, when we, what, maybe a couple months ago, when we, um, I talked about getting the, the agricultural loan and the difference between an agricultural loan and a uh, FHA loan at the time my interest rate was like 1% higher than what a, a VA loan would have been for a residential home. Now, you know, I'm still at the same interest rate. Now it's 1% lower. So in a matter of three months, that's how bad the interest rates have gone. So if you're looking at um, real estate, it's not a matter of getting a starter home or anything like that. You got to be looking at it really long term and saying, is this going to give something in a lifestyle that I want, right? You're getting out of an apartment complex into a single family home. That's a good lifestyle upgrade, especially because most apartment complexes are in shit areas. anymore. you know, there's very, relatively speaking, there's very few that are in a good neighborhood. So, you know, getting to, to a good neighborhood is a good thing. Um, getting farm property. I'm always an advocate for that. I'm always going to tell you getting farm property is a good thing. So these are, um, these are moves that are lifestyle choices that you can justify five years, 10 years of a higher interest rate because what you're buying is lifestyle, not an, but you know, you have to be willing to accept that fact and not just be paying yourself lip service. You actually have to believe that you're buying a lifestyle, not a, uh, an investment that you're going to flip down the road. One of the sacred cows that our generation is about to slaughter and learn the hard way is that, that real estate is a way to build wealth. It's not real estate is a way to build wealth. If you are a developer, if you're building new things that people can use and you sell them at a good price, yeah, that's a totally different game. It is really unusual to make real money by just owning real estate. Land is a store value. Yeah, it can go up over time as we actually just debase the dollar. That's what's really happening. But if you think about it, a house is a depreciating asset. You're going to have to replace that. Uh, and especially these modern houses, you're going to have to replace it really fast. Um, in addition to all the ongoing maintenance. Uh, People don't realize housing is not supposed to be an investment. Housing is a temporary thing. Now, if you if you happen to catch the housing swing at the very bottom, and then you can buy a bunch of real estate, lever up a ton, and then sell it at the top, yeah, you made a bunch of money. That was really opportunistic. And it highly depended on the Federal Reserve leverage cycle and you getting the timing exactly right. And there are lots of people who didn't get the timing right. You, you talk to, you see all these people on Twitter who are like, oh, I made all my fortune, you know, in the last, you know, in like, 2019 to 2021 you're like yeah that's because you happen to be in the right right time right place at a massive explosion in asset prices caused by the federal reserve that's that's incredibly unusual and it's going to go back the other way and there's going to be a bunch of people um but that's just a long way of saying land is a good store value doubly so if it enables your lifestyle but it's not an investment that builds wealth if you are building things that make other people's lives better at a decent price and they're paying for it that's how you build. 
uh, you can store wealth in real estate or you can speculate on real estate and get really lucky on the leverage cycle. But it's really rare unless you happen to be, it's really regional, right? You could, you could live in a place where lots of people are moving to. And so, yeah, it's going to be a bull market in real estate for a couple decades. Um, aside from that, real estate is not a great investment. It's just not. You just have to understand what it is. It's just the dollar getting debased is what you think you're you're making money on, but you're not. Uh, and pretty soon, a lot of people are going to learn the hard way. They can't afford a house anymore because it turns out housing wasn't going up in value. Uh, it's that they were losing all of their purchasing power. And you touched on it, but kind of an understatement. These newer homes are not built to high quality. So if you're not getting in the home and out of the home again in five to 10 years, once those homes hit the 10, 20 year old mark, they are going to deteriorate fast. You know, homes used to be built with true two by four construction and two by six construction on the outside. Now it's the, the watered down two by fours that we use. And they, you know, I don't know the last time you went down to Home Depot or Lowe's and bought some two by fours, but I mean, they're all bent to shit and crooked and they look like corkscrews. And I, you know, I, I go through the great lumber stack of, uh, you know, piling on, you know, flipping two by fours constantly just to find 10 straight ones. I go home, I build on a building and as the stuff's still wet because only, it was cut recently and not dried properly. So now as it's uh, finally drying out over the next six months, the, the structures start to warp. So you know, what is that effect going to have on a home is that you, they're doing framing with uh, sub, you know, substandard lumber compared to 50 years ago. These homes are going to deteriorate fast and the maintenance upkeep on them is going to be so what happens, what happens to these houses that are like sitting on a 500K plot of land and it's a $4 million house and it's not built the way that we used to build houses? What do you think happens there? Well, um, I can give you a different example of when I lived in the uh, southwestern states. Um, these weren't $4 million homes. These were like $200,000 homes or 150000 at the time. You know, they're whatever, probably 2,000 to 3,000 square foot homes uh, built in a housing development by one of those mass um, developers. Um, I don't remember which one it was. It's, you know, some three letter initial, but um, they built it. Uh, they didn't put up more good foundations and monsoon season hit. And the thing about the American Southwest, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, some parts of Texas, you'll have ground that is as hard as concrete. And then you'll hit monsoon season in the summertime and that ground becomes soup. And then immediately hardens up again when the, when the water runs off. Well, these homes, the foundations weren't built thick enough and strong enough, and they sunk into the ground and then cracked. And you had people with brand new homes, you're less than a year old, with cracks going from floor to ceiling. The whole house just like cracked in half. And uh, the massive lawsuits, but in the end, they had, you know, they, they had lawsuits that didn't really go far enough into the repairs of the home. Hell of a time selling those homes because whatever repairs you're doing are on top of a cracked foundation. Um, it's going to be the same thing. You know, you, you can 20 years later, you can try to sue the developer, but they'll be under a new name by now. And you're just going to have shitty homes. You can't unload. Um, so in like in my town, small town, uh, we have a lot of older homes built in the forties and fifties that aren't on foundations. So anytime they're for sale, it has to be a cash transaction because you can't get any kind of FHA loan on a home with no foundation. So you have people, um, They'll either buy it cash, they'll do seller financing, um, you know, and then move into it, or they'll come in and demo it after the fact to build a real home. But we're going to be looking at shit like that, where you just have shitty quality homes and uh, the 
uh, value on them is going to tank and the ability to lo- uh, get loans for them is going to go down as well, depending on the developer. Yeah, exactly. The point I was getting at was if you're buying a $4 million house and the land is 10% of the purchase price, <laughs> you're, you're actually throwing away a ton of money. You're not actually buying a, a $4 million asset that will appreciate as $4 million. You're buying a 400K asset and the rest is deteriorating over time. And maybe 200,000 of that is, is recognizable as, as lifestyle value and enabling you to live your life, right? You have housing, you have a roof over your head, you have a place your kids can sleep at night, um, you have a place to play outside. But above and beyond that, you've got, so let's say now 400K land plus 200K functional value of the house. You just spent $3.4 million on, on something that's just deteriorating. This could be a pure luxury that just evaporates over time. And that's what people don't realize. They think that they think that when they buy a house, that the entire value of that house is appreciating. It's not. It's the land is appreciating. The house is depreciating, but the land is appreciating so fast right now because of money printing that it creates the appearance that the whole thing is good investment. No, it's not. The house is a depreciating asset, and these days it's a rapidly depreciating asset. Well, and this is the opportunity for the manufactured homes to step up. Now, manufactured homes have a bad reputation that stems all the way back to like the 60s and the 70s when they were really built shittily. Um, there are manufactured home uh, manufacturers uh, that are making their, their houses out of two by six construction. So right out the gate, they're already stronger than the um, track homes that are being built in these HOA communities. Now, a lot of the construction guys are gonna get in and argue about this. And I think it's because uh, they're stuck on legacy construction and not being honest with themselves when you have a yeah the house is on wheels but it comes in or comes in on a frame with with attached wheels but it's made out of two by six construction versus a two by four um track home it it, the quality swing is happening and all these manufactured homes and um modular home builders need to do is keep upping the quality two by six construction even going back to rough cut true two by fours right instead of the you know, five and a half by inch and a half boards, but actually go to true two by six construction, rough cut boards, that's going to be even stronger. Um, and what they can do is it wouldn't be unreasonable because this is actually what we're considering where we are now is that you buy a home site, have one of these delivered and whether it's you 20 years later or your kids simply replace it. You will heal once every two to three decades, you empty out the house, somebody hauls it off and brings in a new one. Like the pricing and manufacturing could be there, but that'd be more affordable than buying these forever homes that deteriorate over time. Um, people already do that and upgrade from a trailer to a modular home and whatnot. And it's really not unreasonable. And if the manufacturing could get a little bit more streamlined and get the pricing down, you, you get the quality up and the pricing down, that becomes a perfectly reasonable way of doing things. Uh, you made a great point there, which is that the price of houses should be going down. The price of housing, excluding the land, should be going down over time. It should be going down fast because it's a production method, right? Uh, and there's technology that improves it. Uh, and these these manufactured homes or prefab homes, they're really high quality now. Uh, and pretty soon, I don't think anybody will be able to tell the difference. In fact, some of the some of these prefab homes are better than stick build, as you mentioned, you know, they use two by six construction, uh, the stick build on site, you know, 
homes. So I could very easily see a situation where all of a sudden people are like, wait a second, my house is not going up in value at all. What happened? It, you know, aside from interest rates. Well, it's because houses should be cheap to build. They shouldn't be that hard to build. Uh, the land should go up in value time as we debase the dollar, but housing should drop in price. And so it should be very easy in the near future to build high quality houses that maybe they last a long time, maybe they last longer than the stick built houses, but at the very least, they're cheaper. Yeah, part of it is just getting past the stigma of um, manufactured homes. And they I think they're in modular homes. I think they're doing a really good job of improving their their name on that one. Um, especially in the Western states where it's all where it's dry, they don't have um, rot and termite issues that they're having on the Eastern states, East coast. So it, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happens because we're, we're looking at that now, right? Um, our house is old. We're, you know, and we have, we have two homes on the property. We moved into the better quality of the two homes and we're looking at the other one, the bigger one saying, all right, are we remodeling? Or are we going to demo? And I'm like, I keep thinking, why would I remodel this home for it? Would, it would, it's like I can remodel the home for fifty thousand. I can put a manufactured home there for two hundred thousand. I can do a really high quality modular for three hundred, or I can do a custom home for five hundred. Like, all right, you know, um, if I do a, a fifty thousand dollar remodel in another ten or fifteen years, I'm gonna have to do another remodel or at least start repairing things because the home is old you can't get around the fact that the foundation is old, that the, the, the structure, the, the roofing, all of that. And it's like, it's going to need constant repairs, no matter what, how good a remodel you do, there's always going to be more repairs on an old home. So ripping it out and starting new is good. And it's like, all right, what am I getting in quality difference for a custom built home over a modular home? And it's like, I get a custom floor plan, hundred percent customizable floor plan, but is that worth it? I mean, any home I've lived in, I haven't really chose the floor plan. I just chose the location and a home that worked and you just adapt to the floor plan. So how important is that really? Like at a certain point, you're just flexing money versus getting something that's usable. You know, your kids aren't going to care. Your wife isn't going to care as long as she can maneuver around the house and the kitchen the way she wants to. So again, it's like, what am I getting for my money here? And that's the conversation we're currently having. And I have a feeling I'm going to wind up just demoing the house and putting in a, a manufactured or modular home. How weird would it be if to buy a car, you bring all these engineers on site, uh, they build you a car from the ground up in your driveway <laughs> and they roll the tires in, you know, and, and, uh, and assemble it right there. How weird would that be? Right. But that's what we do with housing. Uh, and I get that housing is less conducive to being transported, but they're figuring that out, right? You can transport a modular home pretty easily. Um, or at least relatively easily, I should say. But main question is, so let's say you go to Europe uh, or any of these old cities in the Northeast US, they see these amazing old houses. Are there housing designs that last 200 years or do they just end up requiring tons of upkeep and we just keep them around you know, for, for posterity and, and because they have character and charm? Well, a home built 200 years ago was not built the way they do today. Um, obviously. But what I mean by that is like my dad's home was built in the late 1800s and he has true two by fours in there. You know, we, we've done remodels on his house and it was rough cut two by fours. Um, he had the, the floor, the floor foundation beams going over the uh, basement were like, I want to say six by six, but it could have been as much as eight by eight. Like they were big beams. 
uh, not what they use today. Everything was bigger and stronger. And they, you know, uh, between him and the, pe the person he bought it from and all the pre previous owners, all they had to do was really keep termites out of it and keep painting the house to, to protect it from snow and rain. And it was funny. You know, the remodels in the house, um, they were never necessary beyond more carpeting and stuff, but he upgraded stuff because the, the house was so old that the insulation was newspaper stapled, stapled to the wall, right? So he put in actual R-value insulation and stuff like that, upgraded the electrical service from, I think it was 15 amp all the way up to 200 now, which is standard, but stuff like that. But the, the actual home is still solid. It's still, there's nothing wrong with the exterior um, walls and framing. He never had to replace any of that. Um, so, yeah, there is an element of we don't build it like we used to. And then we, we could, we could absolutely just go back to two by six construction and two by four, you know, true two by four, um, the rough cut wood, and go back to that and have um, more solid homes again. We could build homes to last, but that's not the way we do it now. You know, we, we build everything to fall apart in 20 years. So uh, I'm about to reveal my ignorance of structural engineering, but just taking some some ideas from commercial buildings, what would happen if you had a steel-framed house with some kind, of, some kind of earthquake-resilient masonry exterior? Is there something like that, that that would last hundreds of years? I would think so, but I don't know enough about steel construction. Um, but I, I, my assumption is that if you have quality steel framing, um, you know, Metal is, when I used to work in, as a mechanic, um, we had this joke, metal is flexible. And it's because metal will give to a certain point. And of course, if you heat it up, you can bend it in all kinds of shapes without snapping it. But metal has a certain flexibility to it, uh, steel anyways, versus just snapping under pressure. So that, that little bit of flexibility, you're talking, you know, hundreds of an inch, but that's got to have a good effect when it's shaking around. Everything's either welded or bolted together. Um, that should hold up to pretty sizable earthquakes before it gives, I would think. But again, I'm not a structural engineer, so I, I could be completely wrong on that. Why, why do we not see any more of these? Why do we not see residential buildings or, or single family homes built to last hundreds of years as an investment? Because as a culture, we can only think three and a half minutes into our future. I mean, it's an oversimplified answer, but I think it's also the most correct answer. We don't think about the future as it is. Think of uh, the phrase starter home. I'm going to buy this home to establish myself as a homeowner intending not to stay here. You know, how many people live in the first home that they bought to the day they die? Almost nobody. Almost nobody lives in a home that long. Like I'm thinking of all the people I know who own homes and I know one couple who um, are still in the, their first home. Nobody else. Like, even, you know, my dad's been in his home for going on 40 years now, but it's his second home. Uh, he lived, you know, he bought a home before that. And almost everybody buys at least one home before they get into their forever home. So nobody's thinking long term in their purchases. Um, you know, you don't buy a car, but how many people, as soon as they're done making car payments, just turn it in and get a new car? They, you know, they don't think of anything in the long term. Um especially as soon as maintenance gets involved, it's time for a new one. So we, we as a culture don't build anything to be long-term anymore, long-term quality. Our clothes wear out. You know, I can't find a, a pair of jeans that'll last more than a year before they got holes in them. Um, you know, everything we have is manufactured cheaply now. And it's so that you 
buy more instead of buying once. You know, you go to Europe and, and you see these towns that have been around for thousands of years, right? And they have an organic human imprint on them, right? They're made for humans. They're made at human scale. Uh, you can do most of what you need around you and not as a way to control you, but because it's conducive to your lifestyle, uh, which is different than these 15-minute cities that they're building, right? Which is the trap. <laughs> they call it a 15-minute city, so you can walk anywhere and do whatever you need within 15 minutes, but it's actually just a way to fool you into mass population control and and preventing you from from going anywhere outside of that 15 minutes. But back to the Europe thing, you know, these civilizations that have been around a long time have figured out a way to build things that last, um, including their houses, right? Their houses usually uh, have been around for a long, long time. Uh, do you think it's just a cultural shift that we'll eventually go through, or do you think we just never get there? We could go through the cultural shift, but we're talking at least another generation before that happens. Um, you know, I don't know that you've ever been able to get teenagers to think into the future. And you look at Gen Z and then Gen Alpha, and they're even worse than we were when we were teenagers. And we, and we were bad, right? We had no ability to think beyond our, our next meal. You know, the phrase the phrase was always, you know, boys can think three and a half minutes into their future. Well, these kids are thinking, you know, 30 seconds into their future. So something, we, we need a hard reset of hard times and all the easiness to go away before people start thinking in, in long-term quality again. Um, so it could happen, but not, not right. Um, but I want to kind of, uh, kind of tangent here. Um, residential or residential rural homes, right? You buy an older rural home, this, I guess this kind of fits into our theme here because it's going to become a, a, um, something for people even in the cities soon. But um, trade the AI is not going to uh, replace the trades anytime soon. And if you're going to live in a rural community, especially a farm, really small town like I do, you need to know how to do shit on your own and at least perform triage on your house. Um, so I uh, a couple days ago, the water pressure in my house like almost almost vanished. Like all the faucets and, and stuff were trickling. So I called call the local plumber to have him come out and he's, he's booked up for three weeks. I'm like, all right, well I make the appointment, but I still got to get water pressure back in my house. So I had to spend time figuring it out. I finally, I found a leak under the house, uh, you know, for the main water line coming off the well. And I had to be able to dig it out, drain it, patch it myself, um, at least enough to make the water usable for the next three weeks until the plumber can get in and do fix it professionally. And if you're going to live in a rural area and you have no home skills, you better learn some. Um, and even if you're living in the suburbs, it's not a bad idea for you to learn them now because there's less and less tradesmen. They're getting busier and busier. And if you can't do shit yourself, you are completely dependent on somebody else's time. Um, so it's just, just something to think about. Yeah, I can't picture AI solving that problem for you, except helping you learn how to do it yourself. <laughs> uh, but as you think about all the major trends, right? all the boomers not replacing themselves in their trades jobs. Uh, and so those, those companies going away, um, all the people moving away from trades because they want to, you know, they want to make money being an influencer or whatever, or they just don't want to do work. Right. A lot of kids these days just don't want to have to do any real work. Um, and then on top of that, all of the inf infrastructure that's failing and, and aging, uh, man, these, it seems like these cities are going to be a hotbed of people desperate for any kind of trades help. Because nobody in the city knows how to do it, right? You live in a city because it makes your life easy. <laughs> uh, 
uh, all the stuff that you need is provided for you. You just give people money and then you lose the ability to do it yourself. Uh, but all these people are going to need pipes replaced. They're going to need clogs unclogged. They're going to need HVAC systems repaired and none of them know how to do it. And it, the need for it is going to go up massively because of all this aging infrastructure and this this trend to build things that don't last, that have to be replaced every so often, right? Just like our appliances now last five years. Uh, man, I, it just seems like it's a coming crisis and you're going you're gonna to call your plumber because you need water and, and he's going to be booked out six months, even in the city. <laughs> yeah, and this is... Um... You know the 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 fintwit the, and other social platforms the um, all the would be money hustlers they they're of the mindset that I'll just pay people to do things for me and there, there's a certain element of that that's true right like you want to remodel your bathroom you say well I've got the skills to remodel it I can lay the tile and do all the work but it's going to take me forty hours of my time and in that forty hours I can make you know whatever ten thousand dollars right or I can pay this guy five thousand dollars to go do it for me. Uh, which you probably can't pay that. It probably costs you more than that. But anyway, it's just the, the point being is that you can pay somebody to do it for less money than it would, than the opportunity cost of you doing it yourself. And that's fine, but you need to know how to do at least the basic maintenance of your car, your home, electricity, water, et cetera. I, I call it triage for your home and car because, you know, incompetence is not the flex you think it is. If you're saying, I'll just pay somebody to do it for me. That's not a flex if you can't do it yourself, because when that person you're paying isn't available, now what do you do? You can't throw money at you can't throw enough money at the problem if there's nobody to solve it for you. You're completely helpless, and I do not believe in helplessness. So um, I am by no means a professional plumber or electrician, but I can fix anything in my home good enough to till the professional can show up and make it right. You know the. I patched my water line yesterday and it's leaking still at a, probably about five gallons an hour. Big fucking deal. I can, I can pump that out of the hole uh, at the end of the day uh, for the next three weeks. And then when he gets here, he could do the proper fix on it. Um, that's all I need to get through. It's not worth any more time of mine to fix it better because it's a minor leak now. It's not going to damage anything. And the same thing goes for my car when it's sputtering about or you know any other problem I face. I could fix it on my own good enough. And that's, everybody's gonna have to be that way for a while. And that's how it used to be. Men, men used to be men and they used to just know how to fix things, mostly because they knew how to fix one thing and that was enough training to teach themselves to fix the next thing. And especially today when you have YouTube and even TikTok uh, can show you how to, how to do basic repairs, there's just no excuse for this ignorance of not being able to fix shit anymore. This is a perfect example of fragility in systems. Uh, if there's one of the major overarching themes in the last several decades is that we've built, we figured out how to squeeze every penny out of every system and in doing so, making it as fragile as possible. So imagine what happens if a whole bunch of people lose uh, their water pressure over a period of a week. <laughs> You're entirely dependent on somebody else to solve it for you, right? Um, that's a huge fragility in the system uh, replicated across however many towns in the country. Uh, and in every other way possible, right? That's just one example. Uh, so really important to start building these resilient networks right now where you have a network of people you can trade skills with and and you prioritize each other and you depend on each other. Because um, nobody can be an expert in everything, right? Like I'm not, 
I'm not going to be able to fix everything. I'm probably going to need my neighbor to help me with one or two things if he's really good at it, right? And then I can help him with a couple of things that I'm really good at. Um, but that's a very different system than uh, than some plumber that, you know, he's you're nothing more to him than, than a paycheck, right? He doesn't care that much about you. You're not very involved as a community. Um, so again, really important to start building these resilient communities that are anti-fragile, not just robust, robust but anti-fragile. Yeah, and that's... Um couple side notes on that it's like ai and robotics will replace the trades last um and if you don't believe that go install a uh uh a garbage disposal on your sink change out the um the, the flapper valve or any, you know the guts inside the back of your toilet uh go replace a couple electrical receptor receptacles in odd places in your house and think how the hell is a robot going to get here and do this the technology will be there Undoubtedly, it'll be there in our lifetime, but the point where it's affordable and mass produced, it'll be the last thing, you know, porn, you know, hookers and porn will be replaced far sooner than the trades. Um, so maybe that's where all the uh, e-girls have got to go. They got to become plumbers now. You know, but, the, um, the sheer irony of the last 30 years was, you know, this uh, manufacturing outsourcing overseas and, and people losing their jobs to technology and robotics and such. They're usually blue collar workers, right? Factory workers, production line workers, et cetera. And, you know, all these Wall Street dorks are like, oh, well, you should have been, you know, with the times. It's your fault for falling behind. Guess who's going to be replaced now? <laughs> all these dorks who don't want to swing a hammer and don't want to do an honest day's work and don't want to have to work up a sweat. Uh, they're going to be replaced and it'll be the trades and the blue collar workers who have a good foothold in protecting their family. Yeah, and there's still the stigma of sending your kid off to the trades. And you know, I saw a couple of people on on Twitter call that out. It's like, you know, all you people saying, you know, send your kids to the trades, would you send your kid to the trades? And it's like, well, I don't have kids yet, but I'll tell you this. Yesterday, I was freaking knee deep in the mud, digging out a pipe under my house. And yeah, it, it, this freaking pipe went under my house that doesn't have a crawl space. So I had to dig myself a crawl space. So would I send my kids to the trades? Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would gladly do it because this is shit that I do myself, right? And I'm certainly not going to raise a kid and say, no, you're too good to do what your old father is willing to do. That ain't going to happen. So, yeah, I'm telling you, sending your kids to the trade is a good thing. You know, you should obviously, t you know, give them a, uh, if they have the mental aptitude, they should also be looking to start their own business down the road and franchise themselves out. But if they're only a career-minded person and they can't run a business, they're still not going to do wrong in the trades. And I would be glad to have my future kid run a trade-based business um, because it's going to be very necessary and it's going to be a money print. Wow. Uh, amazing point. Well said. I can't do anything more than that. <laughs> so, um, so I got one last little rant and then I think I'm good for this episode. Um, been seeing certain things on Twitter and TikTok that, um, and you know, I'm sure they're on the other Instagram and stuff at the platforms I don't use, but this is probably more for younger people. Older people are kind of, you know, older than 30, you probably catch on to these types of uh, scams, but people manipulate numbers in these videos to, and tweets to, uh, I guess I should call them X's now, posts. Um, how they manipulate numbers to try to sell you uh, a, a certain investment concept, right? Like um, the people saying buying bonds right now is such a good idea because it's given 5% interest. And they'll go, well, if you put $10 million in bonds, that's $50,000 a year. And that's median, median income. It's like, of the people who have $10 million, 
none of them are going to put it in bonds because they can take that $10 million and do something far more productive with it and earn still in this economy, earn themselves $500,000 off that 10 million. Like nobody who's listening to the, these videos has $10 million to invest. They've got a thousand dollars at most, and you can do far better with a thousand dollars starting some kind of e-business than you can in, you know, making $50 in a year off of bonds. And it's just, they, they have to use the inflated numbers because if they use the numbers that their audience is dealing with, it would show you how manipulative they're being, right? Uh, another one is um, there's videos floating around about this thing called the Augustus rule, which do not do this without talking to a CPA. You, you can definitely screw it up and get yourself in trouble. But the short version of it is you can rent your home to your business for like 14 days and you don't have to claim it on your personal taxes, but you can use it as a tax deduction. And, you know, all the videos and tweets are going this, you know, how, how can you just write off $40,000? You can't, you know, on this Augustus rule. And they go, well, if you and your wife and your 17 children and you're charging $400 a night, well, then, you know, that's $40,000. Like nobody's got that many kids to put onto their, their business. It's them or maybe them and their wife. And they don't live in a neighborhood where you can justifiably charge four or $500 a night, you know, for renting a room. The reality is most people can flex the Augustus rule to save one to $2,000 and you should, you know, that's a, that's a free two grand to get the right off. But you know, what are the hotels and Airbnbs going for in your, in your neighborhood? How many people are in your household? You know, you can't put you and your wife and your dogs onto your business. It's just, if it's just you, it's just you. So, you, you know, they, they, but they have to inflate these numbers up. Cause if you said, Hey, you can uh, write $2,000 off easily on this Augustus rule. Nobody would care. Who cares about two grand? But when they say 40 grand, well, now you, they've, you've got their attention. You, but the thing is, you can't. You, you cannot do that. If some rich person's doing it, it's because they live in a, a you know, the, the McMansions where you can charge that much money for it. So just kind of every time you see somebody throwing these big numbers around, take a step back and say, what, how does this apply to somebody who is a hundred heir? Who's a thousand there? You know, somebody who's got a couple hundred dollars in their bank account or a couple thousand. And then you realize that the advice they're giving you is absolute garbage. So don't get swept in by these things and then wind up sticking your money in, in short-term treasury bills instead of starting a business or, you know, trying to write off this, uh, these tax loopholes like the Augustus rule for $40,000. And then you get yourself a really expensive audit because you listen to some asshole on TikTok who's inflating numbers to make himself seem more. Um, just be really careful with that. Anyway, that, that's my rant on that. Yeah, the only thing that I can see somebody buying T-bills for, let's say you have $10 million and you're buying T-bills and then you live on it on 500K a year of the of the interest payments. The only reason I could see somebody doing that is if they played the leverage cycle like we talked about earlier on real estate and then just exited a whole bunch because they knew real estate couldn't sustain those kind of prices. I could see that. So you just transition to cash. You're protecting, you know, <laughs> uh, you're protecting against a massive crash in, in asset prices and then you're going to get back in at some point. But if you have $10 million, that's your personal net worth, you should be using at least 80% of it productively uh, and not buying T-bills. Buying T-bills is a short-term solution. <laughs> uh, if your near-term spending needs are such that you need to hold $10 million in T-bills, you better be worth $100 million, a billion, and you better have $90 million or $900 million in productive assets. Uh, as we talked about before, long-term bonds are an idiot trap. Short-term bonds are for setting aside cash for a near-term purchase, uh, which could be like one to three years. Aside from that, you should be deploying capital productively, buy productive assets, uh, or put it in premium collateral that can't be manipulated by the government. 
Uh, short-term bonds are a short-term solution for stuff you need money for near term. So if you're setting money aside to buy, buy things at a better price because you know prices are going to drop, okay, fine. Uh, if you're setting government bonds aside as most of your net worth to just to, to fund your cash flow you need to survive, uh, you're doing something wrong. Uh, again, not financial advice. <laughs> yeah, and I can give you like a real-world example, right? Um, my wife and I, are, I've been doing the in vitro uh, fertility IVF cycles and we're about to go into our fourth one and we set the, the money aside last year to uh, to do this knowing each each round costs about twenty to twenty five thousand when all factors are taken into consideration right the actual egg retrieval the hormones the medications uh, the hotels that we have to stay in because there's no facilities nearby like all of that it comes out to about twenty five grand each round well all that money is in T bills right now because we don't know exactly when we're, you know, we don't have a hard date of when the next one starts. It's all based on her body and her cycle. So once we know we're about to start the next round, um, we can cash those out. And that's a good place to park the money. Whereas um, I've got paper cash inside my safe. Well, I got a certain amount set aside for emergencies. And we actually just had one such emergency. Um, a wildfire took out um, power lines or not power line, internet lines. So you couldn't run any kind of credit or debit card in town for like three days. Um, not a big deal, except you couldn't get gas or groceries. And that's exactly why I have cash in the safe is for cash and groceries. So it wasn't, it was no issue for us. We just pulled some cash, went to the grocery store, went about our day. But um, I also keep a, a amount of paper cash set aside for uh, what I've come to call farmer opportunities. And it's because you'll have some random farmer out here gets a wild hair up his ass and decides you know, he's had this pile of equipment sitting on his property for decades and he's all of a sudden he's going to sell it off and you got to move quick and quick isn't let me cash out this t-bill transfer it to my bank account and then write him a check or withdraw cash quick is this just popped up on craigslist or on facebook or your neighbor texted you get your ass down there and get it before somebody else does so i keep a certain amount of cash on hand for that and that even though that cash is depreciating due to inflation the opportunity cost of the money I will save buying the equipment that I want is massive. So it's worth the depreciation for the opportunity to go buy a piece of equipment that I want or uh, need on a short notice. And that that's unique to me. But if you have somewhat of an imagination, you can kind of see how that would expand to other business and life. So that's, that's all I got on that. Yep. Great point. Um, I love holding lots of cash for opportunistic purchases but I don't hold cash for the near-term yield. It's just that I might as well be getting yield if I'm holding cash. <laughs> if anybody's holding cash for the short-term yield, they're retarded. Uh, you should be holding cash to enable you to do things in life or to position for other asset purchases in productive capital. Um, cash, does not, cash does not do anything. It's for transacting. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that will wrap up this episode. So thank you all for listening. Um, if you didn't get this through the Substack link, you can go directly to our Substack page, Wi-Fi Pioneers at Substack. You can leave a comment, share it with people there. Um, I'd like to know what you think. You'd ask questions, DM us there. Uh, you can also hit us on Twitter at Wi-Fi underscore Pioneers. Um, go ahead and leave a comment about the episode or any questions you have. And, uh, that will be it for this week. Have a good weekend. And remember, nobody's coming to save you. It's up to you to save yourselves. Hmm. Well, it's thinking about stopping. <laughs>